is first the Old Testament reading, and this will be our sermon text as well. Psalm 75. Psalm 75. Reading the whole psalm. This is the very Word of God. We give thanks to you, O God. We give thanks. For your wondrous works declare that your name is near. When I choose the proper time, I will judge uprightly. The earth and all its inhabitants are dissolved. I set up its pillars firmly. I said to the boastful, do not deal boastfully. And to the wicked, do not lift up the horn. Do not lift up your horn on high. Do not speak with a stiff neck. For exaltation comes neither from the east, nor from the west, nor from the south. But God is the judge. He puts down one and exalts another. For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup, and the wine is red. It is fully mixed, and he pours it out. Surely its dregs shall all the wicked of the earth drain and drink down. But I will declare forever. I will sing praises to the God of Jacob. All the horns of the wicked I will also cut off. But the horns of the righteous shall be exalted. Our New Testament reading is 1 Peter 4, verse 12 through 5, verse 11. 1 Peter 4, starting in verse 12. Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened to you. But rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when His glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. If you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you. For the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. On their part he is blasphemed, but on your part he is glorified. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, or as a busybody in other people's matters. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this matter. For the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? Now, if the righteous one is scarcely saved, where will the ungodly and the sinner appear? Therefore, let those who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to him in doing good as to a faithful creator. The elders who are among you, I exhort, I who am a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ and also a partaker of the glory that will be revealed, shepherd the flock of God which is among you, serving as overseers, not by compulsion, but willingly, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly, not as being lords over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. Likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. Yes, all of you, be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility. For God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that He may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon Him, for He cares for you. Be sober, be be vigilant, because your adversary the devil walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Resist him, steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. But may the God of all grace, who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, 
after you've suffered a little while, perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. To Him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. That sends the reading of God's holy word. Now, if you turn back, if you turn, to, if you turn there to First Peter, I encourage you to turn back to Psalm 75, uh, which is our sermon text, and let us, let us pray. Lord, we look to you to bless us, to bless your word to us. Our, our hearts are hard apart from your Spirit's work. Our hearts are impenetrable but for your Spirit's work. So take the word, plant it deep in us. Make our hearts good soil that we might bring forth faith and fruit. We ask this for Christ's sake. Amen. So we've been doing this series this summer, working through some of the Psalms, and uh, we've been looking over the different books of the Psalter. There are five books in the Psalter, five kind of compilations within the the whole book of Psalms, um, and and each one of them has its own particular theme and and unifying center. Um, Book one, which we started out looking at, book one is is Psalms 1 to 41, and we saw there that the kind of the, the big theme of that whole collection of Psalms is, is confrontation. It's about God setting up his king, David, name, namely David, and, and, and establishing his kingdom and the conflict that would ensue between, this, between God's king and the, and the wicked. And so that's what we saw, especially in, in the first book of the Psalter. Then we looked at the second book of the Psalter. We saw a couple psalms there, 42, Psalm 45. The, the big theme of the second book of the Psalter is communication. It's about communicating to the nations around Israel about the king that God has established. So the first book of the Psalter, God sets up his king and through, through confrontation with the, with the wicked. Then the second book of the Psalter, God communicates to the nations around about who this king is. And we saw this note sound uh, at, at the end of Psalm 45 when we looked at that where we read about the ideal king and he's exalted and all the nations come and pay tribute to him and praise him. But then, in book three of the Psalter, where we, where we land tonight, things change. Conflict comes back. But this time it's not the conflict of God establishing his kingdom over against the wicked. This time it's the judgment of God falling on his people for their faithlessness. The big theme in book three, which is Psalm 73 to 89, is devastation. Devastation. God is is devastating his people with his judgment for their faithlessness. These are psalms which are wrestling with the events leading up to Israel's exile. The exile was catastrophic for Israel. Uh, it, it, was, it was the end of everything. At least it felt like the end of everything for them. Imagine what it, what it might have been like, right? So there they are. They're in Jerusalem. And then uh, th- this foreign nation comes, destroys their city, destroys their temple, carries them away into slavery, far away into a foreign land. Right? That would be devastating if that happened to us. But this wasn't just that they lost their homeland and that they suffered greatly and many people died. That is, that is devastation enough. But, but it was even deeper than that because it was a religious devastation. I mean, this was, uh, this was like a reversal of the Exodus. In the Exodus, God brings his people out of slavery into the promised land. In the exile, he brings his people out of the promised land into slavery for their faithlessness. It's devastating. And so these psalms here in book three of the Psalter are wrestling 
with that. And they're asking, what do we do when we are devastated by God's discipline like that? The first psalm in the book is is Psalm 73. There the psalmist is, is wrestling on a personal level with why are the wicked prospering and the righteous suffering? Why is this happening? And, and then Psalm 74 then is the psalm of lament uh, on, a, on a more corporate, a, a public level by the whole people of God over the, dis- the destruction of the temple there in Jerusalem. The psalmist says in Psalm 74, Why do you, God, why do you cast us off forever? That's what it felt like when they saw the temple destroyed. That Psalm 74 there, which is just prior to this one, uh, has this vivid description of the temple's destruction. Listen to these words from Psalm 74. This is verse 3 and following. The enemy has destroyed everything in the sanctuary. Your foes have roared in the midst of your meeting place. They were like those who swing axes in a forest of trees. And all its carved wood they broke down with hatchets and hammers. They set your sanctuary on fire. They profaned the dwelling place of your name, bringing it down to the ground. It's a vivid scene the psalmist gives us there in Psalm 74. Right? Picture these warriors striding into the temple with their axes and smashing the wooden paneling and the, the ornate uh, building there of the temple and then lighting it on fire. That's exactly what happened in 596 B.C. The Babylonians come in and do just that. And so the Jews are devastated. How could God let this happen? And what do we do when when we are devastated by His discipline? That's Psalm 74. And then we get Psalm 75, which is our text this evening. And after those two opening psalms of this book, it's like a deep breath that you take to steady yourself. It takes a step back from the devastation that we were seeing there in Psalm 74, and it reminds us who God is. And it calls us to praise the God of justice and give thanks to the God of justice even when we feel devastated by His discipline. We might think, well, this this talk of the exile and God's judgment on the people in exile, that was specific to Israel in the Old Testament. Do we still experience God's discipline, or aren't we under grace now? Um, perhaps we don't experience this sort of thing from God's hand. Well, I think we could say yes and no uh, to that. Uh, the exile was something specific. It was unique in the history of God's redemption of his people. Uh, the exile was, was sort of a picture of how Israel, like Adam, had failed. And, and they were being driven out. Just like Adam was failed and driven out of the garden, Israel, uh, uh, was, was, they failed and they were being driven out of the promised land. So there's kind of a level there that, no, in our, in our suffering from God's hand, we don't repeat that, that typology, that picture. Uh, but, um, and, and not only do we not repeat it, but, but we have no danger of repeating it because our hopes in Christ, the true Israel, the, the greater Adam, who kept God's commandments and has entered the heavenly promised land, Our inheritance is not in question. It's secure in Him. But we do, nonetheless, experience discipline from God's hand. We read this in the New Testament. Hebrews 12, uh, verses 3 to 8, lays this out crystal clear. It says, Consider Him who endured from sinners such hostility against Himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you've not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. 
And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It's for discipline you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. The author of the Hebrews is saying, you're God's children. Discipline is par for the course. So yes, discipline is a New Testament uh, reality. It's a reality for us. God gives us suffering and difficulty to train us and equip us, to wean us off our idols, to teach us to trust and follow Him. And it might be something personal, right? It could be something personally devastating, a, a sickness, the loss of someone we love. Sometimes it's devastating on a wide scale, right? And we saw something of that this past year. The difficulties brought on by COVID-19 and the lockdowns, we saw, you know, a little bit of that. And, and, and on this wider scale, what do we do in that kind of situation? Whether it's personal devastation or widespread, Psalm 75 says, well, when that happens, entrust yourself to the God of justice. Praise the God of justice. Give thanks to the God of justice. You can imagine the Israelites, they're watching the temple Ransacked. They're watching it being burned. And they're thinking to themselves, what do I have to give thanks to God for? Psalm 75 says, give thanks to Him. Here's why. So the first thing, let's dive in. Psalm 75, the first thing we see is the God whose name is near in verse 1. Let me read verse 1 again. We give thanks to you, O God. We give thanks for your wondrous works declare that your name is near. The psalm opens with this wonderful note of thanksgiving, and it, it sounds almost exuberant. The psalmist repeats this call to give thanks to God. We give thanks to you, O God. We give thanks. He says it twice. All Israel is pictured here as praising God and thanking God. This, of course, right, in, in, in times of difficulty, thanksgiving is the last thing on our minds, but the psalmist is filled here with this genuine sense of thankfulness to God. What's the first thing he's thankful for here? The translation that the New King James gives isn't quite as clear, uh, but in the Hebrew it's, it's clear that the people are thanking God for the fact that His name is near. What, is it, what does that mean, that His name is near? It's really a way of saying God Himself is near. His name represents all that He is. What's His name? Yahweh, I Am, the Lord, the Covenant Lord. The God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses. Right? This, the one who's the same yesterday, today, and forever. So, so the people here of Israel, even in the midst of devastation, they're saying, His name, the Lord Himself, the I Am, who does not change, is near to us. When discipline comes and we feel devastated, we feel like that's near. Right? Trials are near. As the Jews watch the temple you know, being smashed and burned, the Babylonian soldiers feel near to them, right? Maybe God doesn't feel near in that instance. Exile is near. Suffering is near. And that's the way we feel when we're under the discipline of God. This pain, this suffering is near. But is the Lord near? Is He close at hand? Psalm here says, yes, He is. 
He is near to us. He is, he is nearer than all those other things, all the, the trauma or pain or stress, whatever it might be. He is the God who is with us, close to us. He doesn't, this doesn't depend on our feeling of His nearness. The psalmist doesn't say the Lord feels near, but He is near. And the psalmist is, is calling all Israel to, to hold on to this promise. Hold on to who God is for them. And, 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 and he's encouraging to do this by uh, recounting what God has done for them in the past. Right? They're, they're giving thanks that God is near and they're giving thanks for his wondrous works which declare to them that he is near. And they're thinking here of the past. Of, of all the things God has done to save them in the past. Right? They're... they're they're seeing the temple burn, and they're, they're holding on to the promises that God gave the patriarchs, these ancient, unchanging promises. They're holding on to the, the stories of, of Joshua and the conquest, and they're holding on to the stories of, of Moses and the Exodus, the story of David and Goliath, these great moments in their history of how God was near and showed such saving power for them. And, and loved ones, we have these to hold on to, but we have so much more to hold on to. We have so much more of God's wondrous works to recount and declare. We've seen Christ himself. Right? The greatest saving work of God of all. We've seen his love for us. We've seen him lay down his life for us. We've seen him rise from the dead for us. We've seen the, the resurrection of Christ. No present pain can finally compete with the assurance of His love to us. Not only this, we've seen it in our lives too, right? Our own lives are, are, have, have uh, records of how God has done wonderful things for us. We've seen Him preserve us. Loved ones, when discipline and devastation comes from God's hand, recount His wondrous works. Tell them to yourself. Tell them to each other. Remember them together and give thanks that He is near. That's what the psalmist does first. He looks back at God's saving work and how God is near to him now. But he doesn't just recount what God has done in the past, who God has been in the past. He then goes on and talks about who God will be in the future. So he's drawing strength from who God is in the past for the present. He's drawing strength from who God is going to be in the future for the present as well. Look at me at verses 2 and 3. Our second heading here is the God who holds the world. The God who holds the world. So verse 2 tells us God is the judge. And actually we're switching here from the psalmist speaking to God speaking himself in the first person. And God tells his people that he is the judge, that he has set the date and the time when he will bring justice. Uh, and when that day comes, he's going to right every wrong. He's going, to, he's going to judge the wicked and bring justice about. Babylon will one day fall. The people will one day come back from the exile. Israel will come back to this promised land. Christ himself, the Messiah, will come. Justice will come with Christ. And again, what does this mean for us now? In the verse 3, God tells us, he says this, The earth and all its inhabitants are dissolved. I set up its pillars firmly. Whereas another translation gives it, which is a little more clear, it says, When the earth and all its inhabitants shake, I am the one who steadies its pillars. It's a glorious promise. When the world is just erupting in chaos, like, a, like this great earthquake is taking over, right? Whatever it might be, God says that He steadies its pillars. 
He holds firm its foundation. He's telling us that He is on the throne. He's the judge who will come and bring justice. And right now, in the midst of the chaos, He's the one who's steadying the earth's very pillars for us. Even when it seems like everything's coming unhinged. So God speaks this word of comfort to us. And then we look and we see that God also speaks to the wicked. That's what we see next in verses 4 to 5. He doesn't just have a word for his people about how he steadies the world's pillars. He also has a word for the wicked. The God who rebukes the wicked. Verses 4 to 5. Let me read these verses. I said, or I say, to the boastful, do not deal boastfully. And to the wicked, do not lift up the horn. Do not lift up your horn on high. Do not speak with a stiff neck. The Lord's calling out Babylon here. He's saying, don't be proud, Babylon. You are nothing more than a useful tool in my hand. And one day I will turn my judgment on you. What's this image here God uses of a horn? Horns are symbols of power in the ancient world. Think of a bull. Picture a a strong, raging bull. They're they're symbols of strength. And, And so the horn in the ancient world is a symbol of that, of strength, kingship, authority, power. God has raised up the horn of Babylon. He's used it to to gouge the people of Israel, as it were. But he's saying he's going to judge them. He's going to cut off their horn. He's He's going to strip them of their power one day because of their pride. We get this promise in Zechariah. And I said, what are these coming to do? He said, these are the horns that scattered Judah, so Babylon, so that no one raised his head. And these have come to terrify them the Babylonians, to cast down the horns of the nations who lifted up their horns against the land of Judah to scatter it. And of course, we see that. We have the, the, the advantage of looking back through history and we see that's what happened. This kingdom of Babylon, which looked uh, you know, undefeatable to the Jews, looked like it would last forever. Soon it's done. It crumbles, it falls. It's defeated by another kingdom, which in turn is defeated by another kingdom. And it's utterly destroyed. And all the nations, one after another, the the empires of the world, they rise and they fall. They rise and they fall. God is using them for His purpose. uh, But then He brings judgment on them for their pride. What what remains all the way through? It's the people of God. Under His discipline, yet brought through. So brothers and sisters, be encouraged. For all the apparent power the church's enemies hold, all the apparent victories the enemies of Christ might seem to gain. Remember, God is the judge. He speaks a word of rebuke to the proud, uh, to the proud uh, of the world. And every power raised against the church in the past has been brought to judgment and it will finally be brought to judgment. We can rest in Him. We can trust Him. And that's, that's where the psalmist turns next. He turns from God's rebuke of the nations for their pride to God's future coming judgment in verses 6 and 8. And that's our fourth heading this evening, the God who judges all. So verses 6 to 7, let me read. For exaltation comes neither from the east, nor from the west, nor from the south, but God is the judge. He puts down one and exalts another. Israel was uh, frequently in this period of its history looking to other nations to do for them what only God could do for them. They were, they were looking to Egypt to come help them uh, fight off the threat of the Assyrians and the Babylonians. And every, um, um, 
every time a, a, another situation would come up, they'd look to, to some other help besides the Lord. Some other solution they'd try to find besides God. And God is saying to them here, I am the one that you must turn to. I'm the only one you can turn to. I raise up the kings. I put them down. Every king, every president is there because God put them there. And not only every one of them will be brought down when God says it is time. The point for Israel is don't waste your time and your, your energy courting the kings of earth, trying to win their favor and get them to help you in, in, in your cause. Rely on me. I'm the one who will exalt you at the proper time. I'll do it in my time, in my way. Wait on me. Trust, trust me, the Lord says. Trust me to raise you up when it's time and judge your enemies when it is time. Verse 8 then follows up this thought with what's really a terrifying picture of uh, the coming judgment of God. He says this in verse 8, For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup, and the wine is red. It is fully mixed, and he pours it out. Surely its dregs shall all the wicked of the earth drain and drink down. The psalmist is saying there's a, there's a future judgment coming when all the enemies of God's people will be finally destroyed, when judgment will fall. And, and he pictures it like a cup of wine that's it's, it's uh, got spices in it. It's well mixed. It's, it's, uh, it's strong. And, and God is saying he's going to pour it out. He's already started to pour it out. And all the wicked of the earth are going to drain that cup to the last drop. It's a picture of God's wrath. Now at first maybe we hear that and we think, well, good. The wicked will finally get what's coming to them. God's got a day of judgment coming and, and, and everyone who deserves judgment is finally going to pay up. All the sinners are finally going to get what's coming to them. But, but what, is, what is pointed out to us about the sinfulness of these nations? It's their pride. Right, and, and, and not just, you know, we wouldn't just think of the proud, but, but the wicked are those who are the selfish, the bitter, the lustful. It's, it's, it's those who love the creature more than the creator, all those who worship idols. And so, brothers and sisters, it includes all of us. We are the wicked of the earth apart from Christ. And so this cup of God's wrath, apart from Christ, would already be poured out on us. We deserve it. We deserve God to give us the cup of His wrath and force us to drink it to the last drop. So the question is, how can I be one whom God exalts in the end? Instead of having to face His wrath and, and, and drink the cup of His wrath, and that is the most important question, isn't it? How can I be one and who, who doesn't get wrath from God, but gets exaltation from God? One whom God actually glorifies. Wonder of wonders. The answer is that God sent His Son to drink the cup for us. So that instead of being those who have to drink the cup of His wrath to the dregs, we know Jesus did that. He took every drop of God's wrath for us and drank it all. And there's no more, not a drop for us. And because of Christ, because of His righteousness, instead of God's wrath, we're going to be exalted in Him. And so, and so loved ones, when God disciplines us, right, this is the, the question that we can sometimes ask is, is this because of, because of my sin? Is God wrathful with me for my sin? Now, now, yes, He disciplines us to train us out of our sin, but He is not wrathful with His children 
for their sin. That wrath fell on Christ. Not a drop of it remains for His children. Yes, He disciplines us to train us out of the sin that He hates. But He is not burning in His wrath against our sin. His wrath has been fully absorbed by His Son. There's no wrath for us. There's only grace and the hope of glory. And this is what the psalmist's hope is. He knows that he is destined for exaltation and glory. And that's where he turns as we come to the end of the psalm now. Verses 9 and 10. The God of endless glory. In in verse 9, the psalmist sets up the contrast between the the wicked who are going to face the wrath of God, which he's just described in verse 8. And then in verse 9, he introduces what he's looking forward to. He says this. He says, but I will declare forever. I will sing praises to the God of Jacob. The psalmist is saying, I'm looking forward to the time when I will praise and glorify God forever and ever because of His salvation for me. The psalmist has a great confidence. He knows this is going to happen. That God will lift him up. God will raise him up. And the reason he looks forward to this is because of what God Himself says in verse 10. All the horns of the wicked I will also cut off, but the horns of the righteous shall be exalted. The psalmist knows that in the Messiah to come, he's one of the righteous. He knows that God is going to humble the wicked, but exalt the righteous. That's a common theme in Scripture, isn't it? We read about it. Uh, It's kind of the whole theme of the book of 1 Samuel. As God raises up David, humbles Saul. It's a theme that that Mary's song picks up on, the Magnificat, and in, uh, early in the Gospel of Luke as Mary is rejoicing that she's been chosen to, uh, to bring forth the Christ. That she's rejoicing in God because He puts down the proud, raises up the humble. And that's what Christ Himself is, right? He is the one who is humbled, is put down, but then exalted. And, and in Him, that's our hope as well, that, that we, though we are humbled now, will be exalted. Now, so the psalmist is looking forward to this great day when he will glorify God, and be exalted with, uh, with God's people. And again, remember the context as he looks forward to this. He's seen the temple plundered and smashed with axes and burned with fire. But his confidence is that in the end, God will bring justice. He will bring justice. The, the wicked who are doing this will be condemned. And he knows that, that those who trust in the Lord will be rewarded that they'll glorify God forever. He, he knows that he's getting back to the promised land one way or another by God's, by God's grace. So, loved ones, take the message of this psalm to heart. God is the judge of all the earth. He puts uh, in power whom he will. He puts down whom he will. He humbles who he will. He exalts whom he will. When devastation comes, when his discipline falls on us and it's painful, when, when everything seems to be shaking, remember who he is. He's the judge. He's holding the pillars. He's, he's the one who is our great hope. Right? He's the one who sent Christ to take his wrath for us. And remember, remember how this story ends here. As the, as the psalmist looks forward to the day when God exalts him at last, look forward to that hope. And entrust yourself to God and give thanks to God, even in your discipline. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your good word. We pray we would take it to heart. You bear much fruit.
in us by it.